There was a fish in the percolator. And welcome to episode two of The Lodgers, Sorted Cinema's dedicated Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Rennebaum. Hello. And I'm very happy to disclose that this week we are joined by our first guest, Miss Justine Smith. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is dope. Let's do it. Anyone who listened last week will know that we've already discussed the double pilot this week, we're going to be discussing the second aired episode, which is Traces to Nowhere, directed by Dwayne Dunham and written by Frost and Lynch, as well as the third episode, Zen or The Skill to Catch a Killer, uh, directed by Lynch and once again written by Frost and Lynch. And uh, a few, a little bit of house cleaning before we continue. I realized, Kate, that we got through the entire last episode and you didn't plug any of your writing and I wanted you to do that. <laughs> who, do, who are you writing for these days? Oh, I am writing for Cinemascope, which is not a bad uh, outfit to write for at all. They are uh, quite uh, reputable in the world of uh, cinephile film criticism, which is awesome. Uh, I haven't written anything for them lately because I am in a desperate race to finish a draft of my dissertation in the next six weeks. So that's mostly what I'm doing. But uh, yeah, I did realize that we didn't actually even give out like our Twitter handles or say anything about ourselves at all. So I guess I should do that. Um, I, am, I am on Twitter at uh, Cinement, which is spelled uh, Cine, like cinema, and then uh, M-E-N-T. Uh, and you can find me there if anybody wants to say hello on Twitter. I do make sure I check it, even though I don't use it very often, but I don't post as much as I should. Unlike our fellow co-host, Justine, who is a very impressive uh, Twitter maven. <laughs> yeah, Justine, who are you writing for these days? I'm writing for a lot of places. I mean, I have a bit less time now that I have a day job, which is kind of a drag. Um, so I write more for myself, but recently I've written for Motherboard, about the death of IMDb, the message boards, not the website. Um, and I'm hoping to be contributing to a future issue of Cleo, a feminist journal. Nice. And um, not much else, to be honest. Uh, but I always try to keep active and keep busy. Kate, I'm curious, if I Google Cinema Buffy, am I still going to find you on Twitter? Yeah, I tried to work it into the, um, it's in the description still on Twitter of like for my page. So hopefully if you Google Cinema Buffy and like Kate, it'll, it'll still take you to the right Twitter page. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And uh, Justine, you're on Twitter at Red Room Rantings, if I have that right? A hundred percent correct. I tweet a lot. You like, do tweet a lot. An uncomfortable amount. So if you're not <laughs> happy with that, like I won't be offended if you don't follow me. Okay. I'm also on Twitter at Hollow Minds. Uh, I don't write for anybody right now. I'm not in a writing headspace, but maybe at some point I will be again. I don't really tweet about film a lot. I mostly just get really cranky and lefty. So uh, and retweet <laughs> a lot of like dirtbag people. So just be prepared for that if you do decide to get on the follow train. Okay. That's enough uh, for now. We do have an iTunes feed for the podcast now, uh, a dedicated feed, rather. You can find it uh, linked on the post for this page on Sorted Cinema. And uh, I'm, we're planning some more places to find it from as well, but I guess we'll get to that when we get to it. So much to talk about, so let's just get into it. Um, I guess, Justine, since you're here, I, I think maybe the most interesting place to start with these two episodes is that here we have a chance to sort of A, B a Lynch-directed episode versus a non-Lynch-directed episode. 
And I, I wondered if maybe there was anything about the contrast that you thought was interesting. I mean, it's still for television, so I think that Lynch is a little more contained. But there's definitely some stylistic flourishes. Um, and more than anything else, a kind of rhythm that Lynch has that I'm not sure any of the other directors do. Like, he seems to have this kind of innate understanding of the tone, which really shifts so quickly from kind of absurdist comedy to really horrific and i think like early on in this episode like one you have uh not in the third episode which he directed um you have one the the episode opens with for whatever reason somebody in an indian headdress at the table who says nothing and that's never really addressed it it is it is a little bit in the pilot you have some information about johnny who's the older brother but yeah you're right because it's like if especially for normal quote-unquote normal television you don't really have things like that that go unexplained especially taking into account this was made in the early 90s this is not the netflix era where people are like going over every detail and the way that scene leads up into with the with the brie and the baguette into like discussions of laura palmer's death and then this like really sketchy uh conversion from like them obsessing over baguettes to like laura palmer's dead laura palmer is dead then talking to or insinuating going to one-eyed jacks where she used to be a, a sex worker and like kind of like all of this is happening in one scene and it's absurd and then it's kind of funny and then it's kind of horrific um, and I'm not sure any of the other directors kind of get that pacing, uh, not the pacing, but the tonality as well as he does. And just the way he frames it, he's very, very simple. And it's like one shot rather than a, a bunch of them, especially that confrontation in the hallway. Like it's just this one conversation that goes on, um, not shot, for, shot reverse shot, not multicam, just something really, really simple um, and really, really striking. Yeah, I mean, I think the first um, episode, which alternately is called episode one, sometimes it's called episode two. It depends on what your uh, what list you're looking at. Um, but the first episode after the pilot, which is also called uh, uh, Traces to Nowhere, um, that one was directed by Dwayne Dunham, who was the editor on the pilot um, and would direct a couple more Twin Peaks episodes later and was the editor for Wild at Heart and so kind of worked, worked really closely with Lynch. And I think Dunham, of all of the directors who step in to kind of work uh, in the series and are trying to work in the vein of Lynch, I actually think Dunham is one of the ones that does the best job with that. I mean, I think there are other ones who kind of become associated with the first season and who also do a good job. But I think Dunham has a real handle on like what Justine picks up on, which is the kind of simplicity of a lot of the camera work, a lot of the framing. Like Dunham has even talked about uh, this idea of what he noticed from the pilot is that the shots are very static. It's not a lot of moving camera work. Um, it's a lot of simple framing. I mean, if you if you sort of skim through it on Netflix, you can see that it often, the show really is just kind of a series of shots of talking heads until you get to the kind of very unusual sequences where something completely different is happening. Um, but again, it's, it is in reference to a kind of soap opera genre, right? So you do have characters talking to each other is the majority of this stuff. Um, but yes, definitely there are stylistic differences between the Dunham one and the Lynch one. Uh, uh, and we can <laughs> keep talking about that. I wanted to quickly mention Dwayne Dunham has a fascinating career. His first editing credit is for Return of the Jedi. And his first oh, wow. directing credit was this episode of Twin Peaks. Like, <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive. 
Apparently, uh, Lynch sort of had to offer Dunham the directing credit in order for Dunham to be able to justify turning down another editing job that he was already assigned to. So directing Twin Peaks plus Wild at Heart editing was like enough to kind of take Dunham away from some pre-existing gig. So I guess that was sort of the impetus behind that weird like <laughs> line on his CV. Mm -hmm. I would I have to say the main difference stylistically between the two episodes that I really noticed was uh, Lynch's command of lighting is very specific and it's very it's very specific to what he does in terms of the you know the extreme contrast of the lighting the the way the spotlight and shadow works in that very very creepy sequence in the woods with uh, with Leo and the other two guys Lynch seems to have a a real knack for finding we sort of discussed this in the first episode as well he's really able to locate the best way to use their the the male actors faces and physicality to really make them uh threatening and not can and not just campy um we've previously discussed the the camp level of these performances and uh, what he's able to get out of uh, especially Eric Duray as Leo uh in this in in that third episode is uh is really really striking yeah, I mean, Eric Duray, Eric Duray's performance is the one that is uh, perhaps shows the most variability over the course of the uh, of the two seasons because it it has it has some dips later on. Um, no, and, and, no, and I mean, I guess the question is like whether you are entirely sold on it, even in these first episodes. Like there were there were critics that wrote early on that they they even found his performance not super convincing right at the beginning. But I think you're right, Simon, that they are. There are sequences in which it works quite well. I mean, I'm not sure how you guys want to do this. Do you want to kind of focus on like one episode first and then move into the other one? Or do you want to talk about just both together? We can spend some time on, because I, I feel like by necessity, we're probably going to end up spending more time on the third episode. I could on be wrong. On the third episode, yeah, uh, exactly. So, so maybe we, if there's things we can specifically hone in on for uh, for episode two, maybe we should do that. The thing about episode two is it's it feels very much like a setup episode. So it's like kind of a bridge between the pilot and for me, the third, where a lot more happens. Mm -hmm. Um and in a lot of ways, it's super effective and it kind of establishes the tone because like I, I like to imagine the show as how you would have watched it when it would have been airing on television, uh, which must have been like batshit, uh, even if you knew who David Lynch was. And episode two, I think it's the one that begins with uh, Agent Cooper talking to Diane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's upside down on the... Yeah, <laughs> and just that image is so uh, striking for me in part because for whatever reason upside down he looks like the kyle of now like more so than he does in the old age makeup because <laughs> so it's, like, it's gravity and like the thing is that's very distinct about him now is his under eye bags like and i, I don't mean this offensively like i, I adore him but uh, upside down it kind of like recedes a bit and i'm like that's what he looks like now <laughs> more than at the end of episode three where you see him like in actual makeup well, that's um, how they should have shot that sequence, I guess. They should have had it upside down. Upside down and backwards. Upside yeah. down and backwards together. <laughs> Perfect. It would have been amazing. Um, it just sets up so much of the of the lore and so many of like the kind of quirks that are not as threatening. I find episode three is very um, scary in a lot of ways. Episode two, a lot less so. Like, there's the focus on the coffee. There's the pie. There's a lot of like the cuter jokes, although there is this kind of sinister underpinning. Um, I think it's like it's kind of lulling you into a false sense of security um, with only these hints of darkness. 
I mean, it does. Like the, I think the scene. There are a couple of scenes towards the end, though, where you do get um, a very heavy uh, foreshadowing of things to come. Um, I don't. Uh, yeah, a, a very heavy foreshadowing of things to come, uh, in the sense that in the later parts of the episode, you get two sequences. One of which is um, you get Major Briggs and Bobby's mother all sitting around a dinner table. And um, it, it's a sort of odd sequence where you get you get introduced to Major Briggs as a character, and he's an unusual figure, right? I mean, he, he, in a lot of ways, I think he's probably the closest reflection maybe of Coop uh, as a sort of mirror figure there, in the sense of he's very, he's intellectual seeming, he's very verbose, he really sort of seems to be in tune with a kind of larger sense of the universe, particularly as the series goes on. Um, and he uses all of this verbosity to talk about sort of emotion, and he kind of makes all these gestures towards Bobby and you think you sort of know what's going on in the scene and then Bobby responds and the major like smacks him across the face and throws the cigarette into the meatloaf which is one of those another like great images in the show um, but again it's like an example of the show um, really throwing you off I think like you think you sort of understand the scene and it and it's so out of, unexpected from this sort of character who you think is is sort of not like this and then it's underneath it there's, there's this clear current of violence at work in this sort of domestic structure of this family and then two scenes later you get the sequence with uh, Leo and Shelly where Leo like beats the crap out of Shelly and at the time that was like a really talked about scene I remember my mother has said that that was the scene where she stopped watching Twin Peaks she was like I couldn't handle it it really bothered people the scene with uh, with Leo and Shelly and I think Simon some of that may be what you're picking up on there too which is this like kind of odd performance from DeRay where it's <laughs> it's it's not really naturalistic but it's uh, it's like muted I, I don't know it's as much just his presence in the frame as anything else he's just such a big burly dude and the way he's always shot from those angles just to make him seem like he's frankensteining over the rest of the cast it's just a lot it's a lot but it's also funny to think of how scandalized people were by that sequence where he what does he put in the sock exactly Soap. soap apparently if you do that it's like they use it a lot in prison movies it leaves less bruises although apparently not that much less. The, the thing about that sequence is that nothing is shown. Nothing. It literally, he's, he's swinging around the soap and then cut to commercial, Clorox, whatever. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's kind of striking that it was so, I mean, it is an upsetting sequence, but in, you know by today's standards, it's nothing. It's li- Even by like the standards of a few years later, it's nothing. Um, I, this, uh, I mean, notable firsts in this episode. I mean, we do get the first proper appearance of bob although something we forgot to mention yeah yeah uh so if you're kate pointed out that if you freeze frame the end of the first episode you you get the actual first appearance of frank silva which was an accident and it's what inspired them to cast him as bob in the first place i can't imagine another tv production having uh having a, a, a pivot like that but uh, this episode does feature his first proper appearance at this point i don't even think he's called Oh no! By the end, by the end of episode three, yeah, we find out he's called name, Bob. Yeah. yeah, he's in episode two. He's just a man that uh, Grace Zabriskie sees in this vision when she's hugging Donna after she's imposed Laura's face on Donna in in like a, a CGI effect sort of thing that you think looks cheesy, and yet all it does is make it creepier every time. That like imposition yep. of Laura's face on Donna is so 
creepy. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so Frank Silva, yeah, if you, um, I highly recommend viewers, if you are, have access to Netflix, go back and watch, uh, the final sequence again from the pilot where, uh, Sarah Palmer kind of sits upright on the couch after having the vision of the, the necklace and the dirt, um, and pause it. And you can see in the upper right hand corner of the screen, Frank Silva reflected in the mirror. And I had always heard that that was a thing. I always just thought it meant that he like walked by and it was sort of this like odd production accident. It does not read that way. It reads very much as an almost uh, like totally deliberate thing because he's just sort of sitting there staring at her in the mirror and it is the creepiest <laughs> thing. It's so creepy. I read about the reason why it's so creepy and why he's so like stiff and everything. It's because it's shot on film, which is even unusual for television. And that's just like money rolling down. And so he had no choice. Like they have a certain amount of money for that film. And when it goes, like you just, you just stop. And that's why I think it's so like tight. Like if he ruins that, like that's like maybe $7,000 down the drain. Like it's not like you can just redo that. And it's a television episode. This is not a movie. They do not have an limited budget for film. Um, But it, it is so creepy. (laughs) Uh, I think personally my most notable thing about the second episode is that it sets up uh, Coop and Audrey don't really have a good shipping name do they Uh, Uh, no (laughs) they don't (laughs) there's no no good combo there (laughs) but uh, it sets that up for for really the first time I mean we're going to have occasion to keep talking about that especially in season two but that's I mean that's, that's a pretty major relationship that has you know some uh, i can't even talk about it it's gonna get weird is all i'm gonna say apparently that was a an addition of dunham's apparently dunham was the one who kind of really emphasized that and i i don't exactly know how that works like i'm not sure what the relationship was between dunham and uh frost and lynch while the episode was being written but apparently dunham like has sort of taken credit for uh really pushing that as an angle in that episode was the coop and audrey thing um which is interesting because, yeah, it, it definitely becomes a sort of core aspect of season one and parts of season two. Um, and is uh, like some of the the fans are very protective of the uh, Audrey and Cooper <laughs> interchange. So we'll see. We'll see how that develops. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, no, no, we we strive not to spoil on this podcast. And I, it's funny when we started it, I thought to myself, there's not a lot to spoil. But actually, there there really is. So there, there's definitely some stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's going to get trickier <laughs> as time goes on to, to stick to our pledge. Uh, Justine, one of the reasons uh, I was eager to, to get you on the podcast is because there's like a whole dimension of the show that I definitely don't feel qualified. No, I definitely know that I am not qualified to talk about. I, I can't speak to Kate. And that's sort of the uh, the fashion and style aspect, which uh, I know is uh, actually no, I don't know anything. I just I, I assume that it's something that's been written about and is something that people have strong feelings about. So I was wondering if uh, if you had any style related thoughts on uh, I mean, I would think specifically on Cheryl and Finn, but I could be wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much written about it. I think someone did a list like a few years ago for Vulture or some other magazine where they ranked every sweater. The sweaters, the sweaters of Twin Peaks. So good. And uh, like, I think it was in episode two. I'm I'm, kind of mixing them too. But so correct me if I'm wrong. Charlotte Fenn's sweater with the forest, the kind of button up is gorgeous. Um, But the highlight fashion of the two episodes was a psychiatrist's tie which i don't know if you noticed i did not which was a fish oh. it was like just a 
fish. <laughs> it's like you have this guy who's supposed to be a therapist and he has the most ridiculous tie I've ever <laughs> seen. And like, like I'm kind of shocked I never noticed it before because it kind of melts into the background and like it's not ostentatious even though it's like the most like in your face awful tie ever <laughs> thought up. Well, Jacoby has a lot going on appearance-wise. I mean, there is the fact that he sees the world in 3D with his blue and red glasses all the time. <laughs> There's right. just, yeah, and so it kind of blinds you to everything else. Um, I think, like, overall, though, the costuming is, like, one of the most important parts of the show because it's kind of establishing why Twin Peaks works. Twin Peaks is kind of this riff on what the ideal American life looks like, the ideal American family, the Amer ideal American town, um, business, everything. And part of that is this vision of the 1950s and 60s in particular. And there's basically everybody is dressed in these kind of um, 50s and 60s inspired outfits that are kind of updated to the weird, weird garishness of late 80s and early 90s but still like very much rooted in the images from television and movies from movies like Nicholas Ray, which I think is like a huge influence on Lynch, um, but stuff like Douglas Sirk and basically every sitcom you've ever watched, like I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, but kind of twisted and so kind of creepy and unsettling and it hints towards the fact that it may seem on the surface like, oh, everything is super shiny and super nice, but under the surface, it's just wrong. Like, just kind of a bit, like, two degrees to the left of what a happy, normal life should be. Something that I, I'd forgotten and then was reminded of, uh, particularly in these, uh, b frankly, bizarre sequences of Audrey and, do we want to call it dancing that she's doing? Just sort yeah. of, like, hovering there. Uh, diner dancing. Diner, diner dancing. dancing. Yeah. Um, is that the the show has this like weird duality of like concepts of sexiness, which like he, it, for the most part the like the actual regular female characters are pretty much like they head to toe covered in clothes all the time, if not like multiple layers of clothes. Um, and then, but then you also get like the the sequence in uh, at One Eye Jacks where it's like scantily clad women everywhere, and there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of in between. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this thought. It's just something that occurred to me. It, I mean, I think it, it, it plays out often as well, as we'll see going forward in the ways that uh, Laura Palmer is kind of figured as well as a sort of image. And I think uh, another thing worth mentioning around the episode that comes right after the pilot, episode one, uh, is the fact that this is the first time we actually see Laura talking and speaking like as a kind of full body person in the show um you get you get the videotape of her playing in the pilot uh on the picnic trip with donna but there's never any kind of dialogue and then in this one you get the flashback that james has in the police uh office and there's and uh my husband gets credit for this he was the one who had this idea but you get a flashback that's very much coded as a kind of stylistically as if it's a film from the 50s where you get the kind of wavy uh blur in to the uh to the flashback of Laura and the music is so cheesy when this flashback kicks in and you think oh it's such a sort of goofy thing and then credit to Cheryl Lee because like her performance right off the bat just the way that she sort of responds to James and she says you know I the reason I'm happy today is because I believe you really love me 
I mean, the level, like, she pulls that sort of down into this place of reality, even from this kind of goofiness of the flashback. But anyway, so this is the first time you actually hear Laura speaking. Um, and then, in a few scenes later, in, uh, in something I've never noticed before, it wasn't until watching it this time, you get something like, I don't really know what to call it. It's like a flashback without a person that it's attached to. It's like an asubjective flashback, which is that we see again, and it's almost in its entirety, the video of them on the picnic, just in between scenes. It's like it doesn't belong to anybody, mm -hmm. and you just see the whole thing again, and you get this, it's almost like the town's kind of like memory of Laura just playing out again. Uh, and of course, her voice is going to come back later again in the tape with Dr. Jacoby. But uh, but all just to say that, that Laura, I think, as we've talked about already, like is so much at the crux of this like sexiness is this crazy like um very very overt kind of sexual uh stuff a sexual play i suppose on the one hand and then on the other hand this like incredibly kind of like buttoned up pure innocence with the way that like laura's she's always wearing baggy clothing or she's wearing like prom outfits or underwear only i guess a couple other things that are specific to that first episode that i wanted to mention one uh one of coop's first lines specifically to diane is just this seeming non sequitur about what really happened to JFK. Uh, and it's 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 kind of a funny scene, but I thought it was important in terms of, Justine, you were mentioning this earlier, the, the underbelly of things. In a way, I feel like it was preparing the audience for the mystery not getting solved, or perhaps getting a solution that wasn't going to be entirely satisfying. <laughs> because, you know, that's sort of, a, a, a again, a, another sort of classic American touchstone. The other thing I wanted to mention was the use of music in that second episode. Some of the, like, key musical motifs of the show appear for the first time in that episode, like uh, Freshly Squeezed, for instance, I believe makes its first appearance there. But more specifically, the way that episode plays with whether or not the music is diegetic is really interesting. That also continues into the next episode, which Lynch directed, but... There's even a line that, that seems to echo this, and I believe the next episode, but there's kind of an implication that the music is actually just happening. Like, the town is literally just scored, and if, if, you, need, if you need it to be off, you'll need to go turn it off. I'd never really noticed that before. It's a, the the second episode is the one where Audrey it's uh, it's like what's playing on the jukebox right and Audrey yeah. makes commentary out of it and then later either that episode or the next episode she's playing it in Horn's uh, office and he's like what is this racket and he turns it off and it's of course the show's score that, that he like cranks off um, which is great yeah no I liked that I thought there was funny because I've read a review as well back in the day that sort of apparently commented on how in the second this episode the second episode uh, you really start to see the limitations of battle Lamenti as a composer because he just used the same music again as the first episode, which I find hilarious because it's so clear that Lynch and Battle Lamenti and, and Frost understand how like music in soap operas works, right? Music in kind of like a cheesy television sense in the sense of every time a bad character comes on the screen, you get like the music cue. It's like, da, 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 da. They, I mean, Twin Peaks is very much playing with that. And the fact that you have characters like joking, like self-reflexively saying things like, oh, I love this music or I hate this music. It's terrible. Like in the world of the show, I mean, clearly the show is aware of how important the music is like what role it plays in sort of cueing viewers uh, to the kind of televisual experience of this show and other shows as well. Right. And it's not, it's no coincidence that we also get our first glimpse of invitation to love around this time. I 
know, Invitation to Love. That's such a good show. It, uh, so, yeah, for people who don't remember, Invitation to Love is the soap opera that runs within Twin Peaks, which is another very clear way in which the show references the fact that it is playing with kind of soap opera conventions. Um, but I have, I have like, a longer uh, point that I wanted to make about when Invitation to Love shows up, but uh, which I can do. But I'm wondering, if, if is there anything that anybody else wanted to do before, on that episode two before we go to episode three? Um, I just kind of wanted to build on what you guys were saying because I kind of had this mental connection. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about Twin Peaks and why it really endures as a series is that even compared to a lot of true crime stories, real or imagined, that come out now, and I'm thinking of Serial as maybe a really big example that a lot of people have listened to, and it's a podcast, and this is a podcast, and meta, whatever. Um and the biggest problem with serial, as is a lot of these true crimes, is the victim is basically robbed of any complexity or identity. Mm-hmm. And Twin Peaks is very purposefully challenging the idea of Laura's uh, victimhood by creating this incredibly complex character. Um, and I think that part of it is kind of working with a lot of different ideas, a lot of ideas from the real world, a lot of ideas from pop culture. And the music that you guys are talking about made me think of, it is so soap opera. And it is so much like those Lifetime movies, especially of the uh, 1980s, which were really big on adapting stuff by like Anne Rule. So true crime was like huge. But the main audience were primarily women. So the fact that male critics would be like, oh, this is so cheesy, oh, is that is like kind of pointing out how these genres that are typically appealing to women when women are typically the victim is like part of this like ingrained structure. So it's kind of funny that the male critic would kind of point that out as like a problem or a limit and make fun of it when it's a very deliberate decision on a a lot of different layers, I think. That takes me right back to what I was going to say about uh, Invitation to Love as well, which is that I think... There's something really savvy that happens in in the moment when Invitation to Love is introduced in the show, and we see it in the third episode, I believe, Um, and I'll get to that, but I also just wanted to point out a weird tidbit that I found out that kind of blew my mind, which is that Invitation to Love was apparently, the sequences from it were filmed in the Ennis House, which is like a really famous uh, landmark in Los Angeles, where tons of things have been filmed, like Blade Runner, uh, like a lot of crazy stuff has been filmed in the Ennis House, so just as a, just I'm throwing that out there for anyone who is fascinated by that. I found it fascinating. Anyway, the moment when uh, Invitation to Love is introduced, it's the first person who sees it is when Shelley is at home alone recovering from this encounter with uh, Leo when he's beaten her. And Invitation to Love comes on and you get the kind of goofy soap opera title and shot and the announcer says something like, invitation, like every day is an invitation to love. And Shelley walks up and says like, yeah, right. And shuts off the TV. And it's, I think it's a really interesting moment because I think it plays with a lot of what Justine is talking about, which is again, Lynch and Frost, um, utilizing the soap opera as a framework for this show, but not in like a dismissive way. And I think that's what matters is that they are, they are the first ones I think really to take seriously the idea of soap opera as a genre that matters. Whereas I think it had been so often just dismissed because it was primarily for female audience. Um, it was considered sort of like, yeah, trashy entertainment. Whereas these guys, I think really see a lot of aesthetic potential in it. And Simon and I talked about a little of this last week, but one of the things that they get out of the soap opera that's so fascinating is the fact that it lets them just breathe more in every scene. Like the idea that soap opera time is not the same 
time as what you get in a procedural where every minute is sort of like counting down. And the soap opera time here is scenes are simply longer. You get like more discussion between characters. Scenes that in a, a very tightly scripted kind of show would take place like in, you know, two minutes. Here you have 20 minutes of characters talking to each other, which which rubs really interestingly against the kind of fact that it's a mystery investigation show. Like it's like the time of the soap opera is constantly pulling away from this pressure of the procedural, which is even more interesting when you think about the fact that the first season of Twin Peaks, every episode basically corresponds to kind of a 24-hour period. So you're getting these very kind of like slow, drawn-out scenes at the same time as realizing the time is actually moving very quickly creates an interesting sort of friction. But anyway, I was going to say, though, I do think there is something about the way that the fact that you have Shelley encountering Invitation to Love, which is this supposedly kind of space of like the domestic bourgeois female experience of like the, the woman who's at home eating bonbons watching this show and just sort of living the life, where Shelley is encountering it as this complete fantasy that she has no relation to because she is like a woman who is being abused by her husband and sort of has no escape from this and like I don't know I mean I think there's a really interesting tension there we can keep pulling it apart but yeah it's it's funny to me or it's not funny it's interesting to me that we're having this discussion about uh, women's stories being taken seriously on TV because this is still an open question I saw just yesterday a couple of critics on Twitter I want to say it was Mo Ryan and Sonia Soraya but don't quote me on that uh, discussing a couple of, of new and upcoming series and how they noticed male critics just sort of saying that they didn't find the world's engrossing or something like that and, and noticing that they were all women's stories. I, I think it. I think uh, Big Little Lies may have been one of the series. I know that that's also been a point of discussion for some CW shows like Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. These these questions still have not been not been totally sussed out. Some of the debates from the from the time still range. Yeah. No, well, there yeah. was a, a recent statistical analysis on IMDb ratings on television shows. And it was basically exploring the fact that, uh, like, they took, I think, the 20 most popular shows, and then they took, uh, they used IMDb, the 20 most popular shows for men, and then the most 20, the 20 for women. So it's three different lists. And men in general rate really low on the popular shows for women. The shows that were men and women, it's more or less the same. And shows for men, women tend to vote sometimes a little less, but usually very close to the same amount as men. And like it was just an, an analysis. It's, it's a rather small sample size. But for whatever reason, it seems that a lot of men, for one reason or another, I don't think it's conscious. It's like, oh, it's because of women, but I don't like it. But it's like if they don't relate to it personally, it's like they have a much harder time accepting it or liking it, which is weird because as women, we're mostly watching stuff starring men. So it's like, for us, it's like, no, of course you like Indiana Jones rocks. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yes. The, the cross gender identification expectations uh, definitely play out a little differently depending on which gender you're starting from. I have lots of thoughts about all of this and I think we're, we're definitely going to keep talking about it. I mean, I actually think, I know not everyone liked the television show, but I think the OA as a recent example is, is doing something very similar in terms of the questions around using a kind of generic framework to like test how, people respond to questions about victimhood and like the, the relation of like women as narrating their own experience and like how seriously that's taken anyway but I think we can come back to that and keep talking about it um but yeah I think there are lots of good things here what were you gonna say Simon sorry uh so many things I guess to start thinking about the third episode I was going to mention something that kind of crops up in both episodes you were talking about Dr. Jacoby and the tape and you also mentioned the James and Laura scene What's fascinating there is you get these totally 
conflicting visions of what Laura was like. What she was supposedly like with James and what she was like, what she's like on tape was supposedly like with, with Jacoby. And you have some of the first sort of manifestations of people wanting to have ownership of Laura now that she's gone and and also having wanted it while she was alive. That's something that I think really complicates the question of like, is if we want to start gendering shows, like is, uh, is Twin Peaks like a woman series? Is it like, does it, does it fit in with the, with the line of soap operas? You know, we do have this female victim, which is often like the mark of a traditionally male series, like basically every murder show ever. But, you know, we also like, there's also the fact of the matter that like, basically like besides Coop, the vast majority of the male characters are psychotic and the vast majority of the female characters are completely fine. Maybe that complicates things as well. Again, I don't really know where I'm going with this. It's just sort of, sort of an open question as we continue. Well, I mean, I, f- I feel like poor Sheriff Truman and Andy and Big Ed and those guys might feel a little sad. Well, yeah, I guess we haven't <laughs> we haven't spent a ton of time with them so far. So I guess I kind of forgot. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think the question of whether or not like it's a women's show or not. I mean, I think a we should be careful just to be clear that maybe like you know Justine and Simon and I all come come from like a film studies background and there's a lot of complicated questions around saying things like a show is for women or for men or what men or women like I mean I think obviously individuals on your own like we can't predict what anybody likes right it depends but it's it's more I think the idea that there are certain types of things that tend to get associated with certain types of people and this idea about the kind of soap opera as a woman's genre I think I don't know I think there is something to this idea that it's it's maybe less whether Frost and and, uh, Lynch are are interested in like specifically actually playing to women and more picking up this idea that there is such a contrast between the genres that guide the show which is like the mystery kind of investigative procedural thing on the one hand which is so usually about a sense of rationality which you know in the history of kind of enlightenment thought in the West has been very much associated with the masculine uh, framework, right? The idea of like the intellect and uh, rationale and reason as the kind of like masculine way of approaching the world in not in a good way, right? And I'm not saying this is what men are like. I'm just saying that this is sort of like a, a structural kind of framework that gets set out. And then on the other hand, you have the quote female side of things, which is the side of things that tends to be more about sort of intuition, quote unquote, and the emotional side of things and all of this stuff. And this is how this breakdown ends up happening. And again, to Lynch and Frost's credit, the show is very much, I think, interested in excavating how all of the kind of, quote, female stuff, emotion and uh, intuition is and always is at work in this sort of rational space and how it it tends to be oppressed in those kinds of things, right? I mean, like Justine pointed out earlier, the idea that so many kind of crime shows tend to be about a female victim who is completely absent from the show, like the idea that she ever had a life. That's just not there. The idea that there is trauma involved in these kinds of things or like real emotional experience is completely sort of paved over so that you have this like sense of a kind of empirical analytic approach to the world where facts and logic are being brought together and I think I've come up with a perfect introduction for how we're going to talk about the uh, the rock throwing scene with Coop because that's exactly what that sequence is about. Harry when I give the word would you please read aloud each of the names I've written on the blackboard. Okie doke. Deputy Hawk stand over here and hold this bucket of rocks up near me where I can get to them. Would you please put on the kitchen mittens? Deputy Andy, move down, stand by the bottle. Lucy, take this piece of chalk. Not too near, Andy. Oh, I'm getting excited. 
And if I should strike the bottle after Sheriff Truman says a particular name, make a check to the right of that name. Oh, Sheriff, I almost forgot. When you say the name, also briefly state that person's relationship to Laura Palmer. Ready? Ready. I want to bring up that scene exactly like that because it's kind of poking fun at the intuition, but it's also kind of on top of things. All of us have done together separately on more of his films about David Lynch, so it's kind of weird. Like, I feel like I'm retreading some things, but like I've written about him pretty extensively, and I always write about him and kind of from the perspective of surrealism. And I think that surrealism is super misunderstood, where it's supposed to be bizarreness or weird dreams, which is definitely incorporated. But for me, Lynch is closest to the René Magritte, and I want to like I'm, I'm like going really deep down like art history and stuff like that. But uh, Magritte has a really famous painting, which is a trompe l'oeil, which means that you're not sure what you're seeing. And it's the image of a painting in front of a window. And the painting cuts off what you see in the window. And the idea is what's behind the painting must be what's in the painting. Like what's behind the painting is what's outside. And it's like the same reality, but there's a doubt that it's not. And like, like I'm explaining this very poorly because it's a visual 2D thing that I'm trying to put into words. But that's what Lynch is for me. He's a guy who, in basically every single one of his films, is taking the image we have of America and the image we have of the family and basically scaling back and saying the image that we thought we had of ourselves is wrong. So you have like all these scenes throughout the show that are so entrenched in Americana and like we were talking about kind of quote-unquote women's films but it's basically everything there's a lot of dinner table scenes that start off where they're like they're like oh this is the happy family this is like pretty refreshing and then they almost always dissolve into violence and the thing is which is again really consistent throughout of all of Lynch's work the victims traditionally are women and children and it's something that we don't want to face we don't want to face that it's not the boogeyman out of nowhere who's the aggressor, who's the threat to our society. It's your neighbor who's abusing his wife. It's the teacher at the school who's doing some really awful things. Those are the people who are threats. But we kind of hide that behind these images, these fake ideas of what people are or what they should be. And we take incredible comfort in those lies that we tell ourselves. I, to get back to the the rock throwing scene, as we mentioned before, like we're back to Lynch directing land now. That is such a pivotal sequence for, I mean, for establishing Coop's investigative style, for setting up the show's like askew sense of humor. Uh, it also, by the way, serves as a brilliant recap of all the relationships in the show, which are like so yeah. confusing. So that was very very smart to insert that. The it's way like they the did. the most the most creative exposition sequence to remind viewers who haven't seen these characters in two weeks that I've ever seen. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I really loved and forgot about the show is that I feel like so many other creatives, if they had come up, if they had been able to come up with this character of Coop, which they wouldn't have because he's so Lynch-like that it's just ridiculous. He comes into town and tells Sheriff Truman how it's going to be and, you know, establishes this relationship and everyone's basically just fine with it. And they're totally willing to just let him do his thing. And like, even when one of them gets hit with a rock, it just keeps going. They could have set up all these arbitrary conflicts between people, but they completely chose to elide that, which was such a smart choice. 
My uh, a friend of mine wrote uh, wrote me after the first podcast episode came out to to like chat about it, and he he said he's sort of in the beginning of season two, I think, right now, and he he said he's like I'm still at this point in season two, I'm still not sure that Coop is actually an FBI agent. Like he's never actually shown anyone his FBI badge. Is he actually from the FBI? <laughs> It's like, oh, that's a good point. I've never noticed that. But he definitely does not ever show anybody his badge. And you're right, Simon, nobody ever even asks to see it. They're just like, oh, you're a guy in a suit. Definitely. Yeah. Speaking of which, <laughs> this episode marks uh, the first appearance of Albert uh, yeah. Rosenfield, played by Miguel Ferrer, RIP, who will later be responsible for perhaps my favorite scene in the entire show. But we're not there yet. You know, oblique spoiler, I guess. Yeah, more people who may or may not be FBI agents. <laughs> <laughs> It's really weird because I was watching the episodes yesterday and one of the things I, I thought of is like, what was it with the early 90s and the FBI? With X-Files too, right? Yeah. Because yeah. now they're talking about the FBI because of like political issues. But I don't feel like it's ever been like a huge part of the pop cultural landscape. There was just this one moment in time where the FBI was like super interesting and super cool, but not normal FBI. Like they had like the X-Files and this. Yeah. Right. Which is like not representative. I don't know if it was just this moment or maybe it just they just stopped being cool a little while ago because we just realized they suck. Um, <laughs> but like, I mean, it does <laughs> it does kind of connect to, again, like the the Americana, like this this notion of, uh, you know, the myth of Camelot. And, you know, the FBI is kind of mixed up in, in that as well. Once again, I do not have a developed thesis on this. I just I'm pointing out those connections and letting them sit there. I mean, I, I was trying to think about something similar. I, I'd kind of forgotten to sort of, again, follow through my own thinking about this. But Justine, yeah, you just reminded me. I was, I was wondering something very similar about this, like, zeitgeist moment of the FBI being at the front of people's kind of consciousness. And, again, part of me thinks that there's something there about the FBI as, as, as simultaneously both the space of this kind of, like, high-tech, super... Um, yeah, like the, the access to the kind of best in terms of research and forward thinking, right? Because I mean, I think the FBI for a long time, if I'm not totally wrong, was uh, some of the first people, like some of the first sort of organizations to have regular access to things like DNA testing and stuff, right? Like they really stood in as the kind of like forefront of empirical science. But at the same time, they had a very like outsider relationship to like sort of standard government oversight, right? Like they were sort of off in a way, which is, which is what lets the X-Files make any sense. And it's very clear that, particularly as Twin Peaks goes on, that Twin Peaks is playing with that as well, right? Like the fact that there could be a kind of government bureaucratic space that lets someone like Coop do his thing, like that supports Coop in behaving this way, right? That So there clearly is something there in the zeitgeist, this fascination with the FBI. I, I have another one, The Silence of the Lambs, 1991, mm. one of the yeah. highest grossing films of the year. There was something, and like maybe it's because we're too young to remember, like maybe there was a, a big news story the late in the late 80s or a revelation of a release of documents maybe it was the first because now they release like periodically things that are no longer confidential that there was something in yeah. the mid or late 80s that kind of renewed this fascination but i do think it's also this idea that exactly like you said they're the government but they're also clouded in mystery they're part of the government system and they're part of authority and yet they're by necessity outsiders as well so there's this kind of mixed fascination of what actually are they doing behind closed doors? Maybe they had to invent a more interesting shadow government for television because Poppy Bush was so goddamn boring. <laughs> 
Yes, probably. There's something there too about the fa the fascination with um, psychological profiling, like the kind of develop the emergence of psychology as like a in relation to criminology in the 80s and I think late 90s was definitely a kind of a, a thing that novelists and crime procedural people really picked up on and it became a kind of very present thing in the cultural consciousness in the way that it hadn't been before. Right? I mean, psychology as a discipline was really just like coming into its own in the 70s. So like the idea that like I think in the 80s and the 90s you get a lot of fascination with like, oh, psychology of killers and like what, <laughs> what that means, which is again interesting for Twin Peaks because Twin Peaks is sort of entirely uninterested in those questions. Like it is not a question of like the psychology of, of who killed Laura, Laura Palmer. Like that is not something that is going on here. And we'll, we can keep talking about that mm -hmm. later. But it's well, yeah. and maybe as a segue to things we were talking about before, it's not even really interested in the psychology of Laura. It is. I mean, maybe by the time by the time you get to fire walk with me, I think it is a little bit, but not so much in the TV show. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I guess. I, yeah, yeah. Again, we, I guess we don't want to get too much into the future. I mean, we have to talk about this episode. Really establishes some of the imagery that people I think most closely associate with Twin Peaks. Of course, I'm thinking specifically of the Red Room, and of course uh, Michael J. Anderson and the backwards talking. And Bob proper, we get the proper introduction to Bob and uh, the one arm man. Like so much is going on in that uh, first sort of in that 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 first sort of glimpse into the real, the true underbelly of of Twin Peaks, which we haven't even really seen yet up until this point. Maybe this is maybe this should be our first question: is is it? There's this notion that TV shows teach you how to watch them. Maybe it was a rule that had not really been established yet. And I, I, I feel as though in this in these sequences, Lynch is trying to tell us, you know, accept the mystery, you know, Cohen style. And um, as we know, <laughs> as as we know, not everyone accepted the mystery. Uh, people really wanted to watch these sequences and decipher them for precise meaning, which people still do. And I, I guess I'm sort of interested in like wh when you guys watch this for the first time, were you watching in that way? Were you trying to to decipher these sequences when did you watch the show the first time justine did you watch it like years ago or recently i watched it a bit growing up not never consistently because my parents loved the show so they had taped a bunch of it on vhs like off tv so like i would have them or i would have like i would tape over them with other stuff and then occasionally would get some twin peak images <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm sure Lynch would love that that's a great way to yeah. watch but I, I i watched it in uh like i want to say late stage app early university it all it's all a blur yeah. um i've seen firewalk with me more than i've seen like I, i've watched that more recently than the show so this is kind of almost like seeing it for the first time but very familiar i, I find especially the the early part of the first season strangely it's like revisiting a dream that you've been in before so it's like some of it i'm like oh i don't quite remember this but the whole thing feels like a weird, creepy... It's like a dream, in a way. Yeah. You don't remember things clearly, but you know that you were kind of there. I, I can't... I have a hard time... It's like, I feel the same way. I think I think even re-watching them, like, leading up for the... In preparation for the podcast, I have a hard time keeping track of exactly what happened when in the episodes. And it's, uh, it's because I, I think I read somebody else pointed this out. The show as a whole really doesn't 
follow the kind of standard structure of having like a three act or four act television structure, right? It doesn't really do any of that. It doesn't let you kind of slot things into a like, oh, now we're in this part of the episode or that part of the episode. You just get like a series of kind of two to five minute sequences where you're with one set of characters and another set of characters and another set of characters and it, who knows how they all relate, which I think definitely builds into that dreamy quality. Um, but to come back to Simon's question about the, the Red Room sequence, um, I have, I don't know, I have a ton of things to say about the Red Room sequence. I mean, who doesn't? It's like, the, it's the most, um, I, I think a lot of people to this day consider this to be basically the best episode of the show. Like the, the episode with the, uh, with Coop throwing the, the bottles and the Red Room is the, like, you know, is considered to be one of the best episodes. I'm not sure I would go quite that far. I prefer, I think I prefer the finale of the show actually, which is maybe a controversial choice, but, but this is an amazing episode of television. Like this is beloved. Like I remember seeing this and just, I, it just blew my mind. And if I wasn't already completely sold on the show, then this really did sell me on it. But I think in answer to your question, Simon, I am probably not one of those people who has ever felt the need to make things fit into a kind of realistic, explainable uh, framework while watching it. Uh, I think that's a different thing. Like realizing that is a different thing than thinking that there is so much fun and joy to be had in unraveling the kind of framework of this world like in trying to think through this cosmology that's introduced here with good and the bad and the red room and evil and the woods and all of these things that start to come in as a kind of mythology uh you know x-files popularized that term like i don't even think people called it that when they're talking about twin peaks but this is clearly the beginning of the mythology of twin peaks right right and i guess that's a distinction to be made like people at the, uh, viewers at the time may have been thinking they were getting a backstory instead of a mythology. They were getting something to be to be teased apart, which I, I feel like there's that's not such something I'm making up. I feel like that's actually there in how people responded to certain plot developments as they arise. Can I answer your question? Yeah. Because, like, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Oh, do it. I actually really, I like, I, I have this emotional reaction against that deciphering kind of, like, picking up clues. And I know yeah. a lot of people get a lot of joy out of it, so I don't want to say, like, it's wrong way to watch television, but it's the wrong way to watch television. Um, <laughs> maybe it's like even approaching like murder mysteries or reading Agatha Christie. Like I was never, I'm never interested in kind of unraveling what the facts are. And I like, maybe it's cause I just don't like puzzles, but I feel that especially with David Lynch, it is a huge disservice to what he's actually doing, which is destabilizing. And um, like, we're talking about the influences and whatever. And it's from, film noir in a way like it didn't matter who murdered the cab driver in the yeah. big sleep like that's completely besides the point he's creating a, a universe that is kind of a dreamscape that is supposed to not make sense on every level i think he's very deliberate i don't think he's ever random and i don't think he's just making things up as he goes along but it's more invested in this kind of emotional or uh not cerebral i think that's the wrong word but it's like it's it's the dream thing and sometimes dreams don't make sense well they they don't make like an empirical kind of sense but they make an emotional sense right like it's a different kind of logic it's not this is again this the reason why people use surrealism to talk about lynch is that it's not it's not completely bonkers, like, just for no reason. And and if we want to talk about that, we'll see some of that stuff in season two of Twin Peaks. It's just, like, nonsense for no reason, and then it's not good. This is the thing that makes Lynch great, is that it's it's non-logic. It's a type of logic that's, that's emotional logic. It's intuitive logic. Like, the reason it succeeds is because you're moved by it. It, it, it isn't because it follows some pre-existing set of rules. I'm, I'm really happy you said that, because it's 
that's exactly it and it's it's a show that's kind of a, about making sense of something that we don't want to face we don't want to exactly. face like i like i i'm not going into spoilers but like when it when you find out what happened to laura palmer it's a pretty big taboo or not non-spoiler whatever um you also have a lot of domestic violence and you have a lot of really, really creepy, disgusting things going on that most of us like cannot make sense of. So the only framework that works into kind of addressing these issues is approaching it from that point of view. 90% of people don't want to face the truth about the way the world is or the way that certain facets of the world are. Because not everyone on the show is bad or evil, but there is this darkness but how do you make sense of that unless people are evil? You do it through these dreams and these symbols or this weird emotional thing. You feel that it, you feel the darkness rather than addressing it because it's the only way it's palatable to us. So wait a second, yeah. Justine, oh. if I have this right, some viewers are coldly rational and others are purely emotional and the rational ones are wrong. That's what you're saying? That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. They're so wrong. Do you, do you see what you've done? Do you see? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, I'm just, I'm, you... <laughs> I know I'm right. That's all that matters. <laughs> Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see. One chance out between two worlds. Fire. Walk with me. We lived among the people. I think you say convenience store. We lived above it. I mean it like it is, like it sounds. I too have been touched by the devilish one. Tattoo on the left shoulder. But when I saw the face of God, I was changed. I took the entire arm off. My name is Mike. His name is Bob. Justine, like, just introduced a bunch of stuff that I had written down that I really wanted to say about the Red Room sequence, um, which which I think, again, it's not exactly an answer to, to Simon's question about the, the sort of drive to find clues and things. I mean, I think my view on that is that, again, Lynch is aware that there is very much a kind of fascination and joy, and maybe even so, he would go so far as to be like a sort of natural human urge or something to, like, make sense of mystery, right? We're fascinated by it. We, we want to kind of, it's, it's joyful for us almost to, like, work through these things and spend time with them and this is why he created this whole show this way right the idea that you would draw a mystery out basically for as long as you could get away with like he wants to let you be in that space and part of that is already challenging because the drive towards the answer and the drive towards analytics and rationality is is the drive to jump over that space right it's the drive to like never have to deal with the kind of uh, unsettling quality of not knowing the answer and just being comfortable with that which is why Cooper is like the most wonderful hero because Cooper is so willing to be 
be in that space, right? Like for him, horror and joy is like he can hold it all in this space of just not having to worry about it yet, like to be, to know that the answers will come. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm getting off track. I do think that what I would like to say about the Red Room sequence is maybe build a little bit on what Justine was saying earlier with the kind of surrealism aspect about Lynch and the fact that it, it often isn't maybe used with such specificity when people talk about Lynch and they're just like, oh, it's crazy stuff and it's dreams. Whereas, again, the idea of surrealism was much more about freeing people from a certain kind of uh, oppression of rationality, right? Like freeing you from those expectations and trying to think what happens when you're outside of that. And I would go even further and say that I think... Um, maybe alongside uh, Magritte that uh, Justine referenced, I would say I think uh, a very particular person who wrote about surrealism and kind of built on it in the 30s and 40s, who was a French playwright and director named uh, Antonin Artaud, had this sort of idea of the theater of cruelty. And I know this is maybe sounds esoteric, but I swear it is such a good descriptor for what Lynch is doing. And basically the idea of the theater of cruelty was that it was like a theater form that very heavily prefaced uh, like spectacle and lights and sound and noise and very kind of like affect and sensorial experience in order to allow and like force both the audience and the people involved in the production to kind of like have to deal with, with emotions that were often really uh, unpleasant, like affect and kind of like spaces of the of the unconscious that were not being dealt with were being very much oppressed by a sort of like everyday kind of bourgeois lifestyle um and but for him it was this idea that these were emotions that everyone experienced right like these were feelings that we were all dealing with like horror trauma pain misery love like frustration all of these things and they, there was no space for them anymore in this kind of modern life and so what what you would do in these things that were almost assaultive with like lights and sound and everything was that it would sort of bring everyone together and create a space for these things to be worked through. And I think that's such an interesting description of what Lynch is doing. And it, it really separates, I think it, it does a good job of separating him from the way that other people maybe approach similar questions. So like, I think what Lynch is doing is that it, again, it's a shared space and he's part of it, right? Like Lynch gets to these emotions and these strange things through his own experiences. This is why there's such a mythology about how Lynch comes up with these ideas, right? Is like the, the stories that he tells about how he gets there through his own forms of thought. And I think that's a very different thing than maybe what somebody else would have done with this particular story of Laura Palmer which is create a space that could be a didactic space or a lecturing space towards the audience saying, look at you, look at what kind of pleasure you get out of watching a woman be killed and watching people be beaten and hurt. That is not what's going on in Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, like Lynch has no, you know, room for that kind of didacticism that lets him be a separate figure where he gets to, he gets to point out to everybody else how awful they are. Lynch is always working in that space of like acknowledging that at the same time as he's making misogyny a real topic of his work and pointing it out and really dealing with it, he's he's having to simultaneously own the fact that he's an artist who like makes a living off of playing in those kind of images. And so I think I think that tension is like really at the heart of what is going on in a lot of Twin Peaks. Anyway, the Red Room is doing that so perfectly with this kind of introduction of light and sound and strange things and you're just being assaulted and it's like amazing. I would just add to that when you were talking about the role of surrealism in in like one's emotional life, the fact that this is a show that aired on television and that Lynch was was really keen on using on sort of smuggling these ideas into people's living rooms 
Like that was a thing that that was of that's probably what that was his drive to make this. From what I understand, this notion that he could smuggle that emotional reality into this very intimate space, like a much more intimate space than a movie theater. Yeah, that's really yeah. to me what's at the heart of sequences like this. Yeah, it's, it would be one thing to see Laura Palmer, like the dinner tables that Justine mentioned that are so key here where the dinner table keeps turning to violence. It definitely would be a different thing to see that in a movie theater versus seeing it on your couch 10 feet away from your own dinner table. Right? And you're, and probably right next to your family, yes. Yes, indeed. But who else wants to say things about the Red Room? It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you, you kind of nailed it there. I'm not sure I have a whole lot more to add. Justine, anything else you want to mention? It's really hard to talk about it. Like, yeah. that's the thing. I think it that's is. part of its enduring appeal. It's also so uh, hypnotic and so mm-hmm. beautiful. Like, that's that's one thing about Lynch as well. Like, the way he creates images uh, is so hypnotic and it's so yeah. pretty and ugly at the same time. And the Red Room sequence, you kind of get lost in the poetry of how bizarre it is but not like it's just like this kind of flow of image and sound in a way that is like almost impossible that someone could actually create something so perfect and I think that's why it's so difficult to talk about Mm -hmm. um how are you supposed to deconstruct something that that's the way it should be and David Lynch and Mark Frost and the collaborators that's the only way they could have done it and nobody else could do it like that like it's just what was needed it's, and i think basic almost the whole show the whole series hinges in that scene and yet it's so difficult to decipher or to react to or to break down in any meaningful way through words which right. i think is like genius i i, I will say them but the last thing i will say about you know this issue of deciphering scenes like this is i think part of the part of the brilliance of the series is that there's just enough lucidity in these scenes to suggest possible interpretations. And every once in a while, someone will say something and it will actually connect to the broader series and it will seemingly point a direction. I, th- I think that Lynch threads that needle and Frost uh, threads that needle really, really, really beautifully where um, if you do, if you do feel like we're watching it the wrong way, they're giving you a path to do it. Again, we keep saying the wrong way, which I think we're being kind of jokey about it. I think it's it's fine to watch it and, and to watch it as a mystery series, a straight mystery series, and then to sort of see where that leads you. They do provide these very thin, very strange threads, but they do exist. Maybe not in this sequence quite as much, but certainly in some of the others, and, and we'll uh, we'll get there as we go. Um, oh, I, I will level one criticism at these episodes, though, since you mentioned things that are perfect, and I, I don't think really any piece of art is perfect. And I, I just wanted to mention one thing that doesn't work for me in these episodes and has never worked for me in the show at all. And uh, that's Nadine. I, I, <laughs> Nadine has never worked for me. She, to me, Poor Nadine. She, she's kind of a harbinger of the parts of Twin Peaks that are not going to work a little later. Yeah, I, I don't enjoy her scenes. I'm sorry. Maybe that'll change later, but I, so far, not so much. I mean, I think she's kind of purposefully grading. Like, I think I think it's it's... Not that that justifies it entirely if you don't like it. I mean, I, but I, I think it, I think it's there. I think the Nadine stuff ends up working a little later when you get a bit more of a kind of um, reveal about how she ended up with Big Ed. I think, it, I don't know, there is a poignancy there, but it, it certainly isn't super present in these first few episodes when Nadine is just kind of a cartoon character. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Were there things that, that you weren't crazy about, Justine, with the episode? 
I, I'm kind of with Simon. I accept it and I, I kind of enjoy the ride. But if I were to pick one thing that doesn't totally come together for me, like I do tune out a bit. Um, and I, I find it almost a little too bizarre. Like everyone else is kind of like pitch perfect. But it is the kind of thing that I do. I do agree with you as well, Kate. It does kind of make more sense as it goes along. Um, but relaunching into the series like after quite a while it's uh it's a bit much my my personal bugaboo is eric duray's performance i i have a really hard time not laughing when he comes on screen which is i mean again the first time i watched it i wouldn't say that was true the first time i watched it he he worked really well particularly in the first season which is that he's very he is very creepy he's very threatening and like there is some sequences where he's really <laughs> strange but then you get to the second season once you've seen what happens with him in the second season, it's even harder to overlook some of the flaws in the performance in the first part of the season, and it's so goofy. But anyway, that's a time for a talk for later. I okay. think, though, in general, like, a lot of the men are a little harder to palette. Like, the women are so good, and, like, even... I have a little trouble even with, like, James Marshall. James like, Marshall he is up like and a, down. Yeah. Like, it's, it doesn't detract from the show, but, like, you see on the level of, like all like uh Sherilyn Finn especially and um I don't remember the actress for Laura, uh Cheryl, Cheryl Lee, Lee. Yeah. so good that it kind of creates this imbalance that points out how <laughs> iffy some of the men are on the show yeah I, I think we'll have occasion to keep talking about that imbalance as we go forward but for now we, we should wrap up uh having gone over our allotted time for not the last time I promise uh but um any any brief la- very last things anyone wants to mention before we go? I looked up the ratings for these episodes. I could briefly mention those, um, just so people have a sense of what happened. Uh, with the the pilot was thirty four point six million, and then they took a little bit of a hit for the next two weeks. Uh, the pilot was a third of the viewing audience, and then the next two weeks were basically more like a quarter of the viewing audience. So they went down to about uh, twenty million both weeks um, on like, which I think included two viewings because I think on the initial viewing, the second episode was fourteen point nine million, and the third episode was twelve point one million on the initial broadcast which was lower um and it's basically people realizing it was not going to normalize yeah and then i think we see after the third episode i haven't looked it up but it goes down a little lower the 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 dream sequence was very polarizing like it got talked about a lot but people also kind of say that it was the moment where people either dug in and were become became really hardcore fans of the show or started to like leave and we're just like i can't do this anymore with a with a backwards talking dwarf (laughs) it's just not for me and they left (laughs) All right. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, we'll we'll keep track of that as we keep moving. Uh, but I guess for now, thank you, Justine, so much for joining us. Again, you can be found on Twitter at Red Room Rantings. Do follow her. She's very entertaining on Twitter, unlike me. Um, you can find me there at Hollow Minds. Kate, you're at Cinement. That's C I N E M E N T. And uh, that's about it from us for this week. Uh, thank y'all so much for listening. And uh, you can find us at SortedCinema.com. And once again, we do have an iTunes feed now, so subscribe and uh, let us know how you're feeling about all of this. And uh, thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 